The book of Ruth closes with a shift from the unusual nature of Ruth's proposal to Boaz to a more traditional approach to the matter. Boaz meets with the other eligible redeemer in the presence of ten elders who serve as witnesses to publicly settle who will redeem Elimelech's land and marry Ruth. The chapter ends with a marriage and a short genealogy that shows Ruth the Moabite to be the mother of Obed, the grandfather of King David. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Wednesday, January 25th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their publishing and translating work at lhfmissions.org. Well, we conclude our study of Ruth this morning, but to help us wrap everything up, I'm pleased to welcome my guest, frequent contributor, the Reverend Dustin Beck, pastor of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Good morning, Pastor Beck, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It has been a little while since you've been on Thy Strong Word. In fact, this is the first time that you've been on since I've become host. So I was wondering, could you share with our listeners and me just a little bit about how God is working through you and the saints of Holy Cross there in Warda? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so our congregation, uh, uh, for everyone who doesn't know where Warda, Texas is, which I'm guessing is most of our listening audience. Uh, we're located about halfway between Austin and Houston, a very rural community. Um, and our congregation is this year celebrating our 150th anniversary. So we're just, uh, we're very, very excited about that. Uh, we've got Dr. Ziegler from the Lutheran Hour coming down to uh, preach at our uh, anniversary service. Um, but we're a uh, kind of tucked away uh, in a little small farm, uh, farming community. Uh, with a lot of folks who have a lot of uh, history going back here, 160 or so years. And um, we've got uh, just some great things going on. We're part of a, uh, an association of churches in the area that have uh, put together a Lutheran high school, uh, Faith Lutheran High School of Central Texas, that's um, in its sixth year. Um, we're part of a group of churches that have recently planted a new church in Bastrop, Texas. If any of our listening audience has any family members or uh, is ever in the Bastrop, Texas area, be sure and look up Epiphany Lutheran Church. Um, it's it's really just a blessing. I've been here a little over three years and, uh, you know, got here right before COVID and everything else. Um, but it's it's really a wonderful time uh, to be living in the country. It's a great time to be uh, here in Central Texas. And uh, we are just so thankful uh, for the opportunity uh, to bring God's word to this uh, this faithful congregation out here in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So yeah. now, some of Texas got a little snow recently. Did you guys get any snow as far as you are? No, thank God we didn't. <laughs> no, we did not get snow. Um, I think you got to go three or four hours away from here to find any snow. Uh, sure. But we, we, you know, we got temperatures that uh, I think the wind chill today was in the uh, in the 30s. So mm. uh, it's it's not what we're used to. We'll, we'll put it yeah, that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's yeah. I was going to say if we had 30s, it would be short sleeve weather up here in Minnesota. So <laughs> right. I, I can't relate. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you on the program. I've heard you on Sharper Iron a lot, and I you were back when uh, Brady was on. So today, I'm just pleased as punch to have you to help us close out the book of Ruth. 
Oh, know, I'm Ruth, looking forward to it as well. It's going to yeah, be great. Ruth, Ruth is this great book that has just been full of, um, I don't know how to say it. Just, just there's humor. There's a little bit of irony. Uh, there's a little progressivism, right? Because we had Ruth proposing to Boaz in the last chapter. That's something you wouldn't expect. Uh, but as I said at the top of the hour, you know, now things are starting to turn a little bit back to the orthodox and traditional with what happens in our text today. Uh, before right. we dive into it, though, would you begin our time together with some prayer? Absolutely. Let's pray. Oh, faithful God, you promised to preserve your people and save your inheritance using unlikely and unexpected vessels and extending the genealogy that would bring about the birth of your blessed son. Give us the loyalty of Ruth and her trust in the one true God so that we too might honor you through our submission and respect and be counted among your chosen people by the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit who reign together with you now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. So before we just start reading, because I know we're eager to finish it up, we yesterday, uh, I, I, you know, Naomi left us with this amazing cliffhanger when she says, you know, wait until you learn how the matter turns out. And then, of course, we were at the end of the program. And so today we get to find out how the whole matter turns out. But uh, I, as, as eager as we are to do that, maybe lay the stage, set some set some guidelines for what has happened so far so that our conversation could be fruitful for those who maybe had, didn't tune in yesterday. Sure. Absolutely. And by the way, you did a great job solo yesterday. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks. That, that worked out just fine. Yeah. All right. So um, we can start off uh, today by talking sort of about the structure of the book of Ruth, because although it's just four chapters long, uh, these four chapters are, they're sort of woven together in this intricate beautiful fashion uh, in which you see a couple of themes uh, and some reversals of some themes uh, that are just there's so much fun to read, especially if you read through it and then you go back and you read through it again. Again, it's only four chat four chapters. So if you read through Ruth, I would recommend that you read through it a couple of times in a row just to kind of see it from maybe you can see the beginning in light of the end, and maybe you can see uh, the interplay between chapters two and three back and forth. Um, I'll highlight a couple of those things right now. So um, all the way back in chapter one, uh, our listeners may remember, or uh, perhaps everybody kind of remembers the the basic outline of the story of Ruth. Uh, you are surrounded with this, this tragedy, this death that just seems to follow uh, poor Naomi wherever she goes, right? And then on the other side of it, at the very end, our text today is going to end not with tragedy and death, but with with joy, right? Remember uh, in in chapter one when uh, when Naomi says, you know, don't call me Naomi Naomi anymore. Excuse me. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. She's not not a person of joy. She's going to be a person of bitterness because that's all that she knows. But on the other side, at the end of the book, we're going to experience joy. We're going to experience not uh, death, but a birth. And that birth is going to be super significant in terms of the lineage uh, going forward and carrying on the story of God's people ultimately leading towards Christ. Um, some themes that you have uh, throughout the book is this idea, this concept of loyalty, where um, and it's, it's most especially noted in Ruth. She's the one who will not leave behind Naomi. She's the one who's going to uh, provide for Naomi, go out and glean in the fields and everything else. She's the one, uh, you know, Boaz, what he notices in Ruth in chapters two and three uh, is her continual loyalty 
to Naomi. And so that's sort of, he gets an idea of her character, of who she is. And I think that's why in chapter four, he is so willing to take her as a bride is because he sees beyond just the surface level of her being this, this Moabite, this, you know, foreigner. Instead, it's no, she is actually faithful. She is actually of our people through faith. Uh, and so that's why he's uh, he's glad to take her as a bride. Um, and then one thing that I, I was looking at, I uh, was just this, uh, the middle two chapters, um, there's this parallel in both chapters two and three that I think is, is really kind of fascinating, where in chapter two and in chapter three, um, it starts off with Ruth and Naomi sort of hatching a plan, right? Uh, we're going to get food uh, is plan in chapter two. In chapter three, the plan is we're going to get Boaz to, to marry you, right? And then in the middle of uh, chapters two and three, you have the interaction between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, and then on the back end of chapter two and chapter three, you have sort of the coming back together of Ruth and Naomi to sort of say, well, how did it go? Okay. Well, what's the update? Well, how are, how are things moving along? And so, I, I mean, it's just it's a really beautiful book in terms of the way that it's laid out for us, uh, where you have these outer chapters where you have the reversal of fortune, and then the inner chapters where you have sort of just the, I don't want to say the day-to-day, but you you have just kind of the uh, the regular hardships and the regular joys of life. And that's one of the one of the things that is a key feature in the book of Ruth, is that it, it sort of seems like God is... I don't want to say he's not the main character, right? But God is, he's sort of, you can notice a lack of God's active presence, especially when you look back to Genesis through Judges, the the books that came before this. Because uh, in the first seven books of the Bible, what you really see is is God is he's active, he's doing, he's he's br- you know bringing about fortune and, and misfortune, he's he's shaping every single point of it. But then you get to Ruth. And with just a couple of passing references, like the Lord had given, you know, uh, rains, uh, I believe in chapter one to the people of Moab and, you know, uh, God, um, they, they certainly pronounce blessings uh, in the name of Yahweh, the Lord. Uh, but up until right at the very end, and we'll talk about this in Ruth four, but up until the very end, we don't have God actively doing anything in the text. And so we sort of have this, this question that is looming maybe even in our own lives of how is God involved in the day-to-day, you know, the hardships, the joys, the struggles, just our, in our day-to-day lives. And what we find in the book of Ruth is that he's absolutely working behind the scenes to bring about his redemptive purposes, to bring about uh, the lineage that will bring David, the man after God's own heart, who will ultimately bring forth Jesus. So maybe that can serve as sort of a background. Sure. I, I just I just threw a lot out there, but maybe that helps to get our listeners, uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, if they're not excited about Ruth, why not? Right? You got it. Right. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> you, you talk about the structure of Ruth, and I think what is really especially uh, a poignant about that is that this isn't just sort of thrown together. And we talk about it being the inspired word of God, and it is. But at the same time, it is is crafted in a way to tell a story, but to tell it well. And that's one of the points I made yesterday was that, you know, we we have this relatively uninteresting events, you know, some husbands die, they got to figure out how to take care of that. And then I like what you just brought up, you know, God isn't, so to speak, the primary actor. He's not the protagonist in this story, but that's 
in many ways, the way we experience God, we don't have God coming down and talking to us through, you know, through the sky. We don't have God coming to us in pillars of cloud or fire. We don't have, we don't have God even really sending prophets into our lives, except of course, through his Holy word and his son. So, so in many ways, they're living life the way it would have been lived. As you said, when we read the first, you know, seven books, it, it just seems like God is so active in the lives of the people. And what is left out of those books are all the in-between times when life would go on as normal. People would put their trust, hope, and faith in God. They would act on his word. Uh, he would certainly be a part of their lives, but he wasn't actively giving decrees or actively doing things in the creation. And so this is an example of what that looks like, which is, as you said, something that we can really relate to. And I think that's what makes a book like Ruth very important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the, that's the point I was trying to get at is that Ruth is sort of eminently relatable to us because we experience, you know, drought. I mean, I, like I mentioned, I live in a farming community, you know, and there's a bunch of folks around here that, you know, we didn't have a lot of rain this past summer. And that was, that hit close to home for a lot of these folks, you know, and so we can look you know, at a book like Ruth, and we can see that God is ultimately faithful and that he works in these ways. So um, just real quick, uh, before we get into the text, uh, I also wanted to mention uh, just sort of a, a lead-in to Ruth 4, uh, because, you know, you did such a great job yesterday of, of bringing us through Ruth chapter 3, uh, but then, like you said, it kind of ends on a cliffhanger right? Um, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Pause, right? We, we were left kind of on that, that cusp of here comes the climax, here comes the, uh, the way that the story is going to turn out. You can tell that we're in the final day of this, this narrative, uh, and then we're sort of met with a potential plot twist that comes in. Uh, we've you discussed yesterday sort of what it means for him uh, for Boaz to be uh, a kinsman redeemer. Uh, this is uh, the Deuteronomy twenty five uh, sort of it's it's sort of the Leveret marriage situation where you have a relative and he uh, is supposed to buy back you know the land on behalf of his family member if he, the family member has gotten poor and has had to sell it because. Ultimately, remember God owns the land, and so it is an inheritance to the uh, to the tribes and to the families. Uh, but so, as part of that redeeming that kinsman redeeming uh, job, he has the the option that he can take on that role as a um, uh, as a, a leveret uh, um, task of marrying the widow uh, of the one who has died, because obviously he can't uh, carry on the or she rather uh, can't carry on the ownership the name, uh, et cetera, because well, her husband is dead and she has no children. So um, we get into this section and, and it's just, it's almost sort of just going to be, um, here's the the quick climax, if you will, in terms of the story. And then we're going to have the falling action of here's what people said about it and here's what ultimately came of it. So in a way, we've got the big uh, important action of the uh, of the book. Uh, and then afterwards, we sort of have the, um, well, you'd call it the epilogue or the afterwards in a story uh, that kind of takes us into what does this mean? What are we supposed to take away from it? So it's a great honor to be here for the last chapter. Excellent. Well, why don't we get into it? This is going to be chapter four. And I say just the first six verses makes sense. We'll, we'll stop right there where the ESV editors stop. And so we'll begin now. 
Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Well, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. All right, there we go. So it's just getting started, but he, he's bringing out the elders. He's, he's found the guy. He's doing it all the right way. He says, buy this land. And the guy's like, yeah, sure. And he's like, okay, and take Ruth too. And then he's like, oh, wait, so help us understand this. Well, what in the world? It, it certainly has changed in the approach. Right, right. This isn't um, this isn't the kind of thing that we're accustomed to, right? And so uh, we do need to remember uh, that uh, ancient Near Eastern culture and and things of that nature, going and sitting by the the city gate, uh, the town gate there in Bethlehem. These are not things that are all that familiar to us. Uh, but a lot of this is sort of just you can roll with it. You can say this is the way that they did things, uh, especially when we get into the next section where we're going to have a shoe involved. You know, that's that's going to be that's going to be a little different. So we'll get to that next. But uh, right here we have uh, Boaz goes to the place where you would sort of conduct this type of business. Um, this uh, this redeemer. Uh, notice that the redeemer is uh, this this other family member. Notice that he's not even named. It's almost like he's not. He doesn't. We don't hear his name because he's not the character that matters. Um, you, the, by the fact that he is left unnamed. You don't really get like oh, there's there's some significance to this man. No, he is he is going to be insignificant to the story because he's found to be unworthy. He's found to be unwilling to do what he's supposed to do according to uh, the Levitical code, right? And so uh, Boaz is here and he uh, he says, "Oh, let's sit down and talk." You know, he gathers together ten men of the elders that so that they can have plenty of witnesses as to the transaction that's about to take place because uh, Boaz is doing everything here on the up and up. Um, he lays down, he lays out the kind of the account of what's going on. Uh, like I said before, um, you know, the, uh, in, in Israel, when you would sell a parcel of land, right. Uh, because you had become impoverished or because, you know, you, you could no longer take care of it, et cetera. Um, you weren't truly selling it because it all belongs to God. Um, and so you were base you were basically giving it away for a time, you know, uh, to acquire a, a small amount of money. Uh, but then when the year of Jubilee would come around every 50 years was the way they were supposed to do it. I don't know that that's exactly the way that it went down. Everything was supposed to sort of reset. Everything was supposed to go back to where it belonged. And of course you have 
uh, death that intrudes and gets in the way of that. So, you know, Elimelech is no longer around, uh, nor are his sons to take possession of this. Um, and so he lays out the situation here. And, and, and Pastor Boo, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading through this uh, is you notice when when Boaz is first laying out the case, he makes no mention of Ruth. Did you notice that? Right, right. I, it, exactly. He He's sort of putting forward the land, right? And, and of yeah. course, who's not going to want to take on some land? But he doesn't right. mention it's, Ruth. You're right. And so he, he sort of says, you know, here is sort of this opportunity uh, for you to take possession of this, which would also require that you would work it and that you would have your, you know, your servants, your hired people and everyone else that they would work there. And so it is sort of an investment opportunity. I guess you could think of it in that way. But it's a, a chance for this unnamed relative uh, to sort of expand his influence, his reach, his wealth, his crop, everything like that. Um, and so he gives him this offer and the guy kind of says, well, I mean, this is an offer I, I shouldn't refuse. Okay. So um, it sounds like he's going to jump in with both feet. And this is what I mentioned uh, when we were talking a little bit about the context is that uh, uh, this is sort of a potential twist. You know, we always we we thought that this story was going to be about Boaz and Ruth finding love and everything like that. And then who is this guy, this no name guy that comes in and all of a sudden it looks like he's going to swoop in and he's going to steal Ruth right out from under Boaz. Uh, we're kind of just uh, left with our mouths hanging open. Uh, every is it? I don't know. Maybe every every good story has a has a surprise twist in it. I don't know. I don't know. Right. I don't well, it certainly is. It's something that where you feel like everything's going right. And then suddenly, oh, nope, here's another obstacle for you to get through. But right. I, you talked about him not being named. And, I, you know, it, you, you mentioned Leverite marriages. This isn't exactly the same as people will point out because, you know, he's not the direct brother. There's right. uh, some other issues, too. Uh, but it's very similar. It seems like that's the... <laughs> that is the the format they're using for sure. And so it's all yeah. on the up and up, as you said. I wonder if he doesn't mention the name of the John Doe who who is supposed to be in line. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, yes, he doesn't do what would be the honorable thing to do. But at the same time, that's not what Boaz wants him to do. And yeah. we don't we don't know who wrote Ruth, but whoever wrote Ruth is almost being uh, protective of this guy's reputation. I'm not even going to tell you who it is. <laughs> because a he's not pointing to the story and b even though he kind of didn't do the honorable thing he did the thing that boaz wanted him to do which i right. think is what you're suggesting you know he he leads with the land and then once the guy goes oh yeah yeah i'll do it then it's sort of a hail mary play excuse the reference <laughs> to say sure. well now you have to take on the woman but but yeah. in, in in my overactive imagination i'm almost thinking Boaz doesn't lead with Ruth because maybe that would be the the thing he wants. Oh, yeah, Ruth, I'll take on, you know, another wife. So he doesn't lead with her thinking, well, that would be too, uh, too much. So he just talks about lamb. But then when the guy takes it, he goes, well, here goes nothing. You also have to have this other mouth to feed. And, you know, we have just a very summarized version here in the scriptures. But I imagine him adding on to that and just listing off all the negatives about having to take on this foreigner Ruth. And then when the guy says... Oh, yeah, no, no, that's going to get in the way of some of my things I got going on. Then Boaz well, is secretly happy. And if I could jump in, because one of the things of that course. you just said there, when when you brought back up the idea of this unnamed redeemer, 
One of the things that, and when we are in the topic of leveret marriage, the whole idea behind leveret marriage, or at least a portion of that idea, is that the widow would, you know, would be married to the brother of the deceased, you know, husband, so that the deceased husband's name could be carried on. Right. And so this is this is the opportunity for, you know, and this uh, the example that we have of this, uh, uh, not ironically, is going to be uh, with Judah and Tamar. Right. Uh, Which is kind of one of those weird PG-13 Bible stories uh, where you have uh, and and which is actually in the line uh, here of Boaz. We'll talk about that when we get down to verse uh, 11 and 12. But um, you have the idea is so that, you know, a name will not be blotted out from uh, the lineage of Abraham's offspring. That's the whole purpose of leveret marriage, uh, that and for property rights and for the carrying on of the lineage. But maybe he's not named here uh, because Boaz is, is going to be the one who is named. And, and maybe that's even, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this and now, now we've got our theological imaginations working overtime because I, I don't know, and maybe you can offer some insight into this, but when we get into the New Testament and we see the genealogies of Jesus given both in Matthew and in Luke, we see in Jesus's genealogy, we see that Ruth is named in Matthews uh, and also Boaz is named in Matthews. And then Boaz is also named in Luke's genealogy. But they don't, neither Matthew nor Luke in giving their um uh, in giving their genealogies, neither one of them names Ruth's uh, uh, dead husband, right, uh, as the uh, the ones in whom is the the line of uh, of um, of Jesus. That's that's curious to me. <laughs> They'll use uh, Malon, right? Well, no, they they use. Oh, uh, I mean, no. So in Matthew and in Luke, they don't bring up reference to Malon or to Chilion, they bring up reference right. to Boaz and Ruth. But you would expect sure. that Ruth's dead husband would be brought up in this because the whole point of Boaz stepping in as redeemer is so that, um, and I, I can't even remember. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, which one does, uh, does, does Ruth marry? Uh, the name of the one was Orpa, and the name of the other was Ruth. Do we know if that oh. was Malon or Chilion? Ruth I'm, marries Malon, right? Malon. Okay, Malon. Okay, all right. So, so you would expect that when we're going through in Matthew uh, Matthew's genealogy, uh, that it, when it lists by Ruth the you know the Moabitess, that it would actually, you know, it would make mention of this. You know, Malon is is a part of this, but it doesn't mention him. So I I just I'm. That's curious to me because I, as I understood leveret marriage, you would think that it would say, you know, um, uh, a child that was born to uh, to Malon and to Chilia or to uh, to Ruth, you know, by Boaz or something like that, with Boaz, uh, you know, in a leveret kind of a capacity. But it doesn't make any mention of that. That's that's curious to me. Maybe. Well, and I'm maybe thinking about it too, and that's why. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I was a little confused at the beginning because you know I, I suppose I guess I never thought. And I don't know why I haven't thought of this, but for some reason I always thought of this in terms of Elimelech rather than Malon oh, or Malon. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Ruth, although she certainly is the widow of, um, you know, Malon, which is the son of Elimelech, 
because she's sort of a the emphasis is on her being a foreigner who's come into the family of God. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I've never really thought of him actually exercising that because in Ruth, it doesn't mention that he's the relative of Malon. It always mentions that he's the relative of Elimelech. Elimelech, sure. Yeah, sure. so I don't know. I don't know. I think that is interesting. I'm looking here through both genealogies, and of course you're yeah, right. right? Here. It just mentions Boaz. Um, oh, fascinating. But And the fact that, you know, uh, Elimelech isn't mentioned either. You know, like Boaz is, nope. you know— they're from a different branch of, I don't, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, anyways. Well, we see here. fascinating, right? I mean, genealogies can be one of those things where it's either a dull list, right? <laughs> or if, if you're reading it, you know, just surface. Or once you understand the purpose of genealogies, then you it just kind of like the toast finally toasting. The bread's toasted and you're going, oh, this is why. Because, for instance, when you look at Matthew's genealogy and you look at Luke's genealogy, it's supposed to be the same point that they're making, but they take different routes through history to make that oh, yeah. point. Right. Absolutely. So it's it's just fascinating all around. And we're going to get a little bit of a, a genealogy later, which uh, mentions Boaz, of course. Um, but, you know, he, they're going to skip over. They're going to skip over anybody else because the point is Boaz is the father of Obed. Right. But anyway. Um, yeah, so I think that's interesting. I, I, you know, when we talk about the Leverite marriages and stuff, it just becomes a little cloudy because there are some aspects of Leverite marriage that they don't do, um, and then there are some elements that are here. And, and scholars tend to be a little divided on whether this is just a perfect example of Leverite marriage or whether this is something else entirely. Right. Yeah, but that's okay. Yeah, right. Cultural exactly. things we don't quite understand. <laughs> Well, for instance, the shoe. I tell you what, why don't we think about it while we take a break? So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor and I will keep on going through Ruth chapter 4. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dustin Beck, pastor of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. All right, folks. Well, as we come back, we're going to continue to look at the rest of the book of Ruth. But I just want to take a chance to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. 
I'm always encouraged when you reach out. All right, Pastor Beck, before we were going, we were uh, going back and forth a little bit about the Leverite marriage and stuff like that. And some of the elements would be like, yeah, he's not like a brother-in-law. There are some other things where, um, you know, they, uh, you know, even even brother-in-laws could refuse the marriage, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lot of things that are going on here that don't seem to be exactly the situation that we would expect it to be. Um, one of those things, and I don't know that we discussed it or that you explained it, was why the unnamed Redeemer said that I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. It seemed like the deal breaker was that if yeah. he took Ruth, he'd have to have a child, and then that child would be an inheritor, and that's messing stuff up for him. What can we glean, uh, no pun intended, oh, out I see of what you did that there. situation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's nice. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this guy is less concerned with doing his duty um, for the sake of the people of Israel, for the sake of obedience to Yahweh, and instead he is more concerned with uh, what he is going to uh, sort of leave behind, Okay. Um, and so when he says, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, uh, he's talking about the fact that any children that he would have with Ruth the Moabite, um, well, his, you know, his, his profit, his, you know, anything that he builds on the property, anything that he, you know, expands or, or gains or grows from this, uh, that would ultimately wind up going that direction, or at least a, a good portion of it would, uh, because he would be stepping in uh, for Ruth's dead husband, um, you know, it would be that child's, it would be of that family. And so not of, you know, his own particular branch of the family. So you, I mean, I mean, I, I hate to come down too hard on this guy uh, because I can't imagine putting myself in that situation, if that makes any sense. <laughs> but um, this is his, this is his response. And he is more concerned about his own, like the way that he's going to come out in terms of dollars and cents uh, than he is about doing the right thing here, which is there are these these two widows, you know, and uh, they need some help. They need some assistance. They need, you know what they need is they need someone to show compassion towards them because at this point they're sort of fending for themselves. And maybe part of this, I don't want to read too far into it, but maybe part of this uh, is that, uh, that modifier that follows Ruth around, Ruth the Moabitess, you know, the the foreigner, the one who is not even of Israel. No, you know, you want me to go and to, you know, to wed this one, right? He doesn't really see Ruth for who she is, which I think is sort of the, the key difference because Boaz now for the last two chapters, he has seen Ruth's faithfulness towards Naomi, the fact that she is not going to leave Naomi, the fact that she's going to provide for Naomi, the fact that she is right there alongside Naomi through thick and through thin. And he's like, you know, that's the kind of person that, that I would like by my side. Uh, so there's a little bit more of that going on maybe as well. I think so too. You know, this Mo, Ruth the Moabite, I wonder if she ever got to shake that at all. You know, here's this, <laughs> this foreigner. Uh, but, but you know, there are some prohibitions against marrying foreigners. Now, it doesn't make it explicit. It's not like he says explicitly, Ruth the Moabite, but don't worry, she's a faithful servant of Yahweh. Uh, so again, it kind of goes to that, is Boaz got his finger on the scale just a little bit because we know what he wants to happen. He's made it very right. clear. Uh, but anyway, anything else before we read what happens next? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Just uh, again, 
pointing out the fact that Boaz is uh, is maybe we could say he's being shrewd here. That's nice, right? He's being yes. shrewd, lest uh, lest <laughs> the way that the things go the way that he's not hoping they do. <laughs> well, here we go, verses seven through twelve. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. Okay, ending there. Um, all right, we got the sandal thing. And it seems to be starting off with this idea that uh, this is just some old custom that they used to do. It doesn't have anything to do with God's law. It's just old custom. But then we also know sandals were involved in, well, you said it, Leverite marriages. So maybe help us make the distinctions here. What in the world? I mean, isn't this how you close a deal nowadays too, Pastor Boo? Oh, yeah. Every time. Every time. Take off a shoe and leave it behind with somebody? Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but we're missing um, the uh, spitting in the face part too. So, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I've also spitting tried in the that. Face part. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is if somebody uh, decides that they don't want to do the duty of uh, be uh, entering into a leverate marriage, yeah, they're supposed to, you know, you know, she takes the shoe and she spits in his face and everything like that, which is just wonderful. Um, yeah, it's it's the way that we do things still in the 21st century. Definitely. Well, no, by I, the I way, what's is. <laughs> what's great what's wild about that is that that isn't just something that developed over time that was actually god's law that yep. the widow was to spit into the one's face who refused to marry her and then uh take his sandal so i mean that, that's this, it's a shameful yeah, thing that you wouldn't do what god is asking you to do because it's it this is how you love your neighbor Right? You love your neighbor. You you have respect for the dead. You have uh, compassion for the widow. Um, and so you do this thing. And yes, um, in a way, you die to your own selfish desires of, you know, uh, raising all of these children that will have your name and carry on your, you know, everything else. Uh, but no, I, I'm sorry. This is the way that it's set up in God's law. And so to not do that, uh, it does bring about some scorn and maybe some some shame. That's the way it's supposed to do it. <laughs> So they draw off the sandal, though, in this case, and it just – it seems to me that it was just something unusual. And the reason why I think it seems to me that way is because, well, he has to explain it, and he calls yeah. it the custom in the former times. So whoever's writing Ruth at the time in which they're writing, I'm assuming this custom has already fallen off for probably good reasons. So they, they don't switch sandals anymore, but he just wants them to know – Oh, by the way, he drew off his sandal and gave it to them. Oh, and by the way, that's not weird as it sounds. It was pretty normal. 
The thing about that, though, is, of course, he could have just not mentioned it, but yeah. he mentions it and then he explains it. But either way, it's I, a neat little little uh, detail. It's a neat little detail that's in there. And, and you know, the way that I kind of see this is this might be one of those uh, one of those moments where there's sort of almost kind of a hat tip or a kind of a, a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. Where this is sort of paying homage to that that part in the in the Levitical law that deals with, mm. you know, when somebody doesn't, you know, fulfill their rights or their their obligation in leverage marriage. But also, you know, this is I was thinking about this last night. I couldn't sleep last night. Uh, and I was I read over this a couple of times, read through the whole book of Ruth. And, and you know, back in uh, it's chapter three, right, uh, where, you know, Ruth and Naomi, they hatched their plan. And well, what is uh, Naomi's plan for Ruth entail? Well, you know, you go into the uh, the threshing floor where he's fallen asleep and everything else. And then, you know, uh, lay down by his feet, uncover his feet and lay down. So there is, uh, and without getting into, into any of the uh, the stuff that you talked about yesterday and all that kind of thing, and what does this mean and everything else, you know, maybe there's just this kind of, this almost this symbolic kind of throwback, this reference back to, you know, oh, this is like when she, you know, placed herself under his care and under his protection there at the threshing floor. Um, and it's now we see this fully, you know, uh, realized whenever he is saying, yeah, no, I'm here's how I'm going to demonstrate this, you know, take off the sandal, hand it over. Like, yes, I'm going to purchase this. I will not, you know, take off the shoe uh, and hand it off to somebody else. But instead, Boaz is going to do the thing. He's going to, he's going to take uh, Ruth as his own uh, bride uh, and he's going to so fulfill it. So again, if we want to talk just kind of about the masterful storytelling uh, that the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of Ruth uh, to offer up here for us, you do have foreshadowing and you have callbacks and hat tips and wink, wink, nudge, nudges. And I don't know what you call that in actual writing because I don't do that. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying here. Uh, exactly. and you have this this wonderful moment where he he even reminds us, even though we've been talking now for 30 minutes about Leverett marriage, he reminds us in verse 10 that this is to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that that's why we're doing this so that he's not uh, his name is not cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. This brings it back to, hey, listen, we're doing this so that the dead who are the faithful dead, right? So that the dead mm -hmm. who are the faithful dead, uh, so that their names might live on even now. Um, and I think there's something beautiful in that. And maybe that even points a little bit towards the resurrection and the fact that uh, the dead who are the faithful dead, um, they're not as dead as we sometimes think of them as being. Instead, they're waiting for us in heaven for the resurrection. Well, I, I couldn't help though, when I was reading it again, uh, aloud for the listeners, that when it said so that his uh, so that the so he could perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, and then I couldn't help but remember, yeah, except you don't mention him again, <laughs> he, <laughs> right? I mean, he doesn't come up in Matthew and Luke, and see now that's bugging me. But um, just as a trivia sake, verse ten is the first mention of actually which of Naomi's sons Ruth married. There it uh, is. We that's could, right. Yeah, so we could uh, we could figure it out because of the way that it's the editors write it. They put them in the order of the the daughter in laws are in the same order as the sons. But this is actually the first sort of explicit. By the way, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon. So I just you know, like I said, just for uh, your trivia's sake. Now we officially know which one she married. But then we have all these elders there at the gate, and all the witnesses. 
And I don't know why. I just think this is, um, especially in its current context, just a, a beautiful blessing, right? May Yahweh make the woman who's coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. It's it's just this this remembrance of their ancestry, and of course how God worked through Rachel and Leah too, as is quoted here, to build up the house of Israel. What a, what a wonderful blessing! Yeah, this is great. I I just I love this section here because uh, one of the things that you notice uh, in uh, verses eleven and twelve when these blessings are spoken uh, is the fact that uh, Rachel. And Leah, of course, uh, um, the two wives, uh, um, two of the four wives, of course, you also have uh, Bilhah and Zilpah, right? But uh, two of the four wives of Jacob, uh, and uh, whose name is Israel, right? And then you also have Tamar, uh, who is the daughter-in-law who ultimately becomes the, ooh, the concubine would does judah actually marry tamar i'm not exactly sure um yeah i think he does so uh, you have these three women uh and and they're all named and and these three women none of them are by birth you know obviously of israel they're all foreigners so rachel and leah uh they're you know from abraham's family but they're arameans Okay, um, and then Tamar is a Canaanite, um, whom you know Judah finds for uh, his first son. I think his name was Ur, right? And then he did what was, what was wicked, and God struck him down. And then his brothers. This was the the whole Leveret marriage thing. It was a weird weird Bible story in the Book of Genesis. But you have these three women that are listed that are foreigners. They're outside of the people of God, and they ultimately bring about the people of God. I mean, this is uh, this is the genesis of the house of Israel, because through Rachel and Leah and their two servants, obviously, uh, and then through Tamar, you get the lineage of Israel and then you get the lineage uh, through Tamar, uh, through Perez, you get the lineage even going right down to Boaz, to David and to Jesus. Uh, and so this is just a terrific blessing that is spoken over Ruth. Uh, may the Lord make this woman just like them. May she be a part of the, the lineage. May she be a part of everything that God is doing while as he, uh, by his hand, gently guides and directs this line that began with the promise given to Abraham. Well, it began with the curse spoken to the, uh, to the, the serpent in Genesis 3, but it's been traced through all of these gen uh, genealogies and these generations, and now uh, they're asking, may, may this promise, may this be fulfilled through Ruth, and you know what happens after that? It is. That's that's mm -hmm. the last couple of verses of the book, is that it is fulfilled through Ruth, um, and that ends up with her name a couple of times uh, in the New Testament in these genealogies of Jesus. How great is that? I think it's amazing when you look at the genealogy of, Je genealogy of Jesus and you see, um, as I like to say, real people, right? Real people yeah. with uh, that had real sin in their lives. You they you know you think of Tamar and the situation that brought that about. Uh, you kind of even think about not necessarily uh, Leah and Rachel, but you think about their dad and all the things that went about to make that happen. Just it's just God uses um, life as it is. Uh, maybe with the exception of the Blessed Virgin, but <laughs> he uses uh, life right. as it is to bring about this genealogy of Jesus, and it's just amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we continue reading? I'm going to read verses 13 through 17, and we're almost to the end. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. 
and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, okay, so this is why earlier when we started talking about this, I was thinking, you know, Naomi, and, I'm sorry, pardon me, uh, Malon isn't really mentioned. He's only mentioned as her, as, as uh, Ruth's husband in verse 410. And then right. now we have... When it comes to the the birth, it's not like, oh, Ruth, you were just a wonderful, wonderful mother. They all turn to Naomi. You know, bless yeah. you who have not left you without a redeemer. May his name be renowned. Of course, that's the Lord's name. So, hmm. yeah, I just think it's it's beautiful that the attention then turns not to Ruth but to Naomi. And not only that, uh, you notice, I, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm kind of thinking, you, you had mentioned, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary. That there's there's a little bit of um, ambiguity in this, you know, these verses 14 and 15, where blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Okay, uh, but is the redeemer Boaz? Of course, Boaz is a type of Christ, right? Uh, he's a a pre shadow of of Christ. So Jesus is a greater redeemer obviously, than Boaz. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Whose name? Uh, certainly not Boaz's name, right? But the Lord's name. May his name be renowned in Israel. He, the Lord, shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. There's a lot of ambiguity in there, and maybe this is something for us as Christians who, uh, as we're all fond of saying, know the rest of the story. Right, uh, we can see that when God does bring unexpected life, because if you read Ruth chapter one, and then I told you this was how it was going to end, you might look at me funny and say, "But how?" <laughs> right? Um, maybe this is just sort of a just a brief flashing glimpse of the fact that. Yeah, there's going to be a woman who one day will give birth to him. And who is him here? Well, not obviously not saying that Obed uh, is, is, is Jesus or anything like that, but that this is a sign, a type, a prefiguring of what will ultimately happen when God grants to another woman who doesn't you know, have any business holding a child in her lap to do so. Um, one other thing that I thought was, was really interesting, just as far as the storytelling of the book of Ruth, um, is that the name Obed uh, means uh, servant, right? And uh, that's uh, a different, uh, there's a different word for servant that, that Ruth uses uh, back in chapter three. But when she um, introduces herself again uh, to Boaz that evening, whenever, you know, she's by his feet and he wakes up and everything, she says, you know, I am Ruth. I am your, you know, your servant, which is just, it's kind of crazy. This idea that you have these overlapping themes just back and forth and back and forth where you have, well, that's, that's how Ruth made herself 
you know, uh, known to Boaz. And then that's the child that the, the folks wind up giving to this, this, uh, this son that is born. Uh, but one thing that we did gloss over real quick, and we can't miss this, um, is in verse 13, Pastor Boo, uh, where it says, um, you know, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her. But then, then we have mm-hmm. God's activity God's active activity here in the book of Ruth. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So it seems like God's hands have sort of been off of the tiller, you know, this entire time. It sort of seems like God has just been allowing things to, uh, you know, um, I'm going to see, I'm going to see how this one plays out. Right. Boaz's craftiness at the beginning of chapter four, uh, Ruth and Naomi hatching their plan and everything like that. Um, the uh, we might call it just the circumstances of the fact that where they happened to where she happened to go out and glean that day. Well, that belongs to Boaz. So things sort of fall into place and everything like that. But then God is the one who gives her conception. And we had this all the way back when we were talking about um, Rachel and Leah and Tamar and everything else, that God is the one who is actively involved, although sometimes, like in the book of Ruth, we see that it's behind the scenes. But here, God takes center stage, and he is the one who shows up to grant this next generation, uh, this new life from the midst of death, from the midst of despair, from the midst of tragedy. So now we're going to have this joy. And who is the bringer of that joy? Well, it's none other than God himself. So God finally shows up, and when he shows up, he shows up in a big way that's going to have a lasting impact all the way till the genealogies in Matthew and Luke when Jesus comes on the scene. Well, and you're right to point to Jesus for a number of reasons. What you were saying right before you uh, pointed out rightfully that you know God is you know, back on in a visible way, uh, it says, you know, the women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all of Israel. Uh, my first knee-jerk reaction was that his name was actually Yahweh's name being renowned. Right. Uh, looks like grammatically his name is referring to Obed. So um, that really ties into what you were saying about ultimately we're really pointing forward to Christ because Obed would be representative of the Redeemer that will come from that family line. Unfortunately, we don't have any time to get into it because we're right here at the <laughs> end of our time. Um, yes, but I do for this for the sake of uh, completion, we should read. Uh, the very last uh, few verses, 18 through 22, which is the genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse, Jesse fathered David. And of course, the root of Jesse is Christ. Uh, the last minute, it's all yours. How do you want to uh, end today? Just by reminding everyone who's listening that the point of genealogies is to bring us to Jesus. It's to show us the lineage that God works through history. Sometimes, like in the book of Ruth, it's behind the scenes. We don't exactly see when God is active and when God is allowing us to make our mistakes and everything else, and he works in spite of those. But God is always working through all of the uh, the normal hardships and joys, all of the things that we experience, um, and even the passing of the generations. 
sins. He's working to bring about his Savior, uh, his Son, our Savior, Jesus, who comes to redeem us in a way that Boaz could, uh, you know, he could never begin to redeem us. Jesus comes to be the perfect Savior from sin. He comes to redeem Ruth and Boaz and everyone else, you and myself, all of our dear listeners who receive this word by faith. So thanks be to God for that. Thank you, the Reverend Dustin Beck, pastor of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Dear Saints, tomorrow we begin a new book, the Book of Esther. It tells the story of a young Jewish woman named Esther who becomes the Queen of Persia and uses her position to save her people from extermination. Notably, God is also in the background there. In fact, nowhere in the book is God even mentioned. Yet behind this true story of palace intrigue, pride and arrogance, and a lot of irony, we see God's hand of providence at work shaping history and working good for his people. Join us tomorrow as we begin that. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.